there and welcome to City Breaks London, episode 11, The Strand and Piccadilly. We've been to lots of serious places, Westminster, the City of London. I think it's time to head for the Entertainment District. Didn't want the episode to be too long, so I've only put The Strand and Piccadilly in the title. But in fact, spoiler alert, we're also going to Covent Garden and to Leicester Square. To the fun part of London, if you like. The part that's synonymous with theatre and entertainment. The bright lights, if you will. I'm pretty sure that everybody can picture the flashing neon lights of Piccadilly Circus, surrounded by theatres and clubs and cinemas and restaurants and pubs. A place to go if you want to wander, look for entertainment, pay your money and go inside perhaps, or maybe just enjoy the crowds, the hustle and the bustle. There's a slightly racy element to all of this as well. I saw it described somewhere as the area of bright lights and red lights, a reference, I think, to Soho. And all I can say about that is, twas ever thus. As early as 1801, Charles Lamb was writing a letter to, of all people, William Wordsworth. I'm guessing Wordsworth was up in the lake somewhere, and Charles Lamb decided to write to him and say, I don't much care if I never see a mountain again in my life. Because he was down in London, in the very area we're talking about, and he found it extremely exciting. Much better than being marooned in the country. This is how he put it. The lighted shops of the Strand and Fleet Street, the innumerable trades, tradesmen and customers, coaches, wagons, playhouses, all the bustle and wickedness round about Covent Garden, the very women of the town, the watchmen, drunken scenes, life awake if you awake, at all hours of the night. The wonder of these sights impels me into night walks about her crowded streets, and I often shed tears in the motley strand from fullness of joy at so much life. Let's start with the strand then, which has been the main road from Westminster to the city for centuries, and therefore a place to pass along, a place to stop off for food and entertainment, a place if you were rich in, say, the 12th century, to build yourself a riverside residence. If you were a bishop or a nobleman, that's very likely what you did. As smart a house as you could afford, and as could be built in medieval times, opening on to the river, so that you could come and go by boat. Something actually that in the 17th century, Charles II did on the momentous occasion when he arrived back in England from exile. He landed, he got out of his boat, he paraded along the strand, and we know this because he was watched by the diarist John Evelyn, who noted that this was the end of his, quote, sad and very long exile. So it's interesting to note, isn't it, that it was here that he chose to land. Even then, and certainly in the 18th century, the Strand was one of London's most fashionable streets. Busy and exciting, full of entertainments, but not without its seamier side and its riskiness. Here, for example, is James Boswell, famously the companion and friend of Samuel Johnson, describing one of his favourite prostitutes, writing that she was, quote, a civil nymph, with white thread stockings, who tramps along the strand and will resign her engaging person for a pint of wine and a shilling. That was in 1762, and 40 years or so later, somebody else was writing about the dangers of being pickpocketed in the very same street. This is one Henry Crabb Robinson, describing walking along what he called the narrow part of the strand. In a great crowd, he felt himself pressed on all sides, and then suddenly, he felt hands pushing on him and found himself down on the street where he had been thrown down, and gradually 
he realised what had happened. Quote, I was uncertain whether I had lost anything, and then I remarked for the first time that I had lost my best umbrella. I felt my watch, but my gold chain and seals were gone. The prime cost of what was taken was about eight guineas. On the whole, I escaped very well, considering all circumstances. Many persons have been robbed on this very spot, and several have been beaten and ill-treated in the heart of the city and in the daytime. Such is the state of our police. My watch chain was taken from me, not with the violence of robbery or the secrecy of theft, but with a sort of ease and boldness that made me, for a moment, not know what the fellow meant. He seemed to be decently dressed and had on a white waistcoat. You have to feel sorry for Henry, although there is a certain naivety about thinking you couldn't possibly be robbed by somebody wearing a white waistcoat. Seventy years later, in another diary written in 1900, R.D. Blumenfield makes reference to that other scourge of the Strand, drunkenness. In fact, he's saying it wasn't as bad as he had known it to be on this particular evening, but still, what he writes does give you a flavour of what had been going on. We counted only nine men and five women who were unsteady with drink, he says, of a Saturday night that he'd spent walking in the Strand. And, in not one instance, were we molested. If you go to the Strand today, what you'll actually find is a very wide, busy shopping street with a few highlights on it that you may wish to stop at or even go into. And they would be the Savoy Hotel, along with Simpson's Restaurant, and the Savoy Theatre. The Savoy, one of the London hotels, surely. A famous name known all over the world. Built by a collection of people with famous names in 1889. Richard Doyley Cart, a name connected today with operas, was the mastermind and financier behind it all. And the original manager had a very famous name, César Ritz. And the person they hired to be their head chef was none other than Auguste Escoffier. It wasn't just the staff who were famous, they had some very famous clients too. For example, Oscar Wilde and Lord Alfred Douglas were there, conducting their affair in the 1890s. The writer Arnold Bennett stayed for several months while he wrote his last novel, called The Imperial Palace, and set in, yes, a London hotel. The French painter Claude Monet used to come and stay, and it was from one of the windows looking out over the river that some of his Thames paintings were done. And plenty more. You can still stay there today, of course, and if that sounds a little too pricey, then you could always settle for stopping off at the hotel's American bar for a cocktail. As cocktails go, that won't be particularly cheap either, but you will have the pleasure of knowing that you are drinking it at what was the first bar in the whole of Europe to serve cocktails, this being in the 1930s. And in keeping with that era, there's a lovely Art Deco foyer, but also, in a nod to its history from much further back, a statue of John of Gaunt, because he it was, in the 14th century, who owned the land on which this is built, and indeed had his palace, known as the Savoy Palace, built on it. Being one of the 14th century's most powerful movers and shakers, perhaps it's not really a surprise that he lost his lovely house in the Peasants' Revolt of 1381. They rampaged through it, drank all his wine in the cellars, and then burnt it down. But the name, at least, lives on. And another building just next door, with a very illustrious reputation, is Simpson's in the Strand, a particularly English kind of restaurant, built in 1848. Originally, the building on the site before that had been a coffee house, somewhere where gentlemen would smoke cigars with coffee, 
look at the newspapers, discuss politics, play a spot of chess, all in a proper gentleman's club sort of atmosphere. No women, certainly not. But when, in the mid-19th century, it became a restaurant, it soon established a reputation as really one of the very top London restaurants, popular with Charles Dickens, somewhere where the Victorian Prime Ministers Gladstone and Disraeli both ate, because all of them enjoyed the very English, very traditional way of serving a good roast dinner. The practice of wheeling large joints of meat on silver trolleys to each table and carving in front of the guests began then and still prevails today. There was an article in the Times in 1905 describing what you could expect if you went to have a roast at Simpson's. Quote, a large open fire is absolutely indispensable and it must be sufficiently large for every portion of the joint to face the centre or red fire which will give a steady and ascertained heat during the whole time the joint is revolving and being cooked. Basting must be done continuously. Not more than one minute should elapse from the time the joint is taken from the spit until it appears at the table. So generations of male customers went along to enjoy a proper roast, promptly served. One of its biggest fans was the novelist P.G. Wodehouse, who wrote, rather surprisingly in 1915, when surely there must have been shortages everywhere else, that Simpsons was carrying on as usual, and he had a lot to say about the atmosphere and why it was that things were done properly there, revealing in fact on the way quite a lot of his own prejudices. Anyway, this is how he put it. Simpsons in the Strand is unique. Here, if he wishes, he, notice, no women allowed in those days, the Briton may, for the small sum of half a dollar, stupefy himself with food. The god of fatted plenty has the place under his protection. Its keynote is solid comfort. It is a pleasant, soothing, hearty place, a restful temple of food. No strident orchestra forces the diner to bolt beef in ragtime. No long central aisle distracts his attention with its stream of new arrivals. There he sits, alone with his food, while white-robed priests wheeling their smoking trucks move to and fro, ever ready, with fresh supplies. Actually, by 1917, even Simpsons had to admit a certain degree of defeat and wasn't able to serve meat absolutely every day because of the war. Although they did apparently manage to hang on to lots of well-cooked fish, salmon and sole and turbot. It was English to its core, but in fact, one of its greatest triumphs came in the 1970s when the first Michelin Guide was published. There were no English restaurants with two or three stars, but Simpsons was one of the restaurants awarded one star. And in the same decade, they celebrated their 150th anniversary with a luncheon consisting of all the things that people had come to expect from Simpsons, namely turtle soup, roast sirloin of beef or saddle of mutton, and boiled syrup roll. In 1984, they caught up with the Times somewhat by saying that they would no longer forbid women from using the street-level dining room. Until that date, ladies had been asked to go upstairs to the dining room, where it had been specially painted for them in pastel colours. Oh, that's nice, isn't it? Anyway, you'll be pleased to know it's still there today, serving classic British cuisine, carving at the table for you from, yes, an antique silver-domed trolley, and I checked up the menu currently being served, and I was delighted to find that it had all the things I've come to expect. Pottage shrimps, roast saddle of lamb, steak and kidney pie, duck faggots, and treacle sponge and custard. Its website boasts that it offers the best Sunday roast in London, 
and I suspect that as long as you're happy to have the very traditional fare on offer, they're probably right. And also part of the whole Savoy complex, the Savoy Theatre. In fact, the theatre came earlier than the hotel, and it was their long, successful run of Gilbert and Sullivan musicals which allowed them to amass enough money to furnish the hotel. It's not the only theatre in the street. There's also such famous emporia as the Adelphi and the Lyceum. The Lyceum being where the Lion King has been running for decades. And perhaps the last thing of note in the Strand, right at the end, is Somerset House, which is in fact the last surviving Grand Palace from the Strand. And you can go into the courtyard and have a look and get the flavour of what it must have been like when buildings like that lined the Strand. There's a lovely courtyard with a fountain in the middle. It's turned into an ice skating rink in winter, I believe. And if you want to get inside, then note that the Courtauld Gallery, one of London's very classiest art galleries, is part of the building, so you can pay to get in there. Something I would absolutely recommend. It's one of those classy exhibitions which runs more or less in chronological order, from medieval paintings such as those of Lucas Cranach right up to the 20th century, so you can see Kandinsky and Roger Fry, for example. It's not overwhelmingly massive, and there are gems in every room, so perfect. There are also a series of rather nice cafes and restaurants inside, one of which has a riverside terrace, so a lovely place to linger. OK, moving on to Covent Garden then. That too has quite a history. It was originally laid out in the 1630s as a rather upmarket square, but sadly it began to go really rather gradually downhill. What were originally coffee houses became pubs, which turned into gambling dens, and in some cases, brothels. We know, for example, that in the 18th century, an anonymous author published a tome called Harris's List of Covent Garden Ladies, which was billed as a sort of dictionary of prostitutes. In the 19th century, things looked up a bit. It very much grew into its role as London's fruit and vegetable market and flower market. You might recall that it was the scene for the introduction to theatre-goers of Pygmalion's Eliza Doolittle, who was a flower seller, right there. Covent Garden today still has its piazza, surrounded by shops and restaurants, lots of buskers and street performers, an ever-changing array, somewhere to linger, to be entertained, altogether a very London experience. It's also an area with connections to theatre, and has been for at least a couple of centuries. Mary Lamb, writing in 1817, stayed in Covent Garden and wrote about the, quote, hubbub of the carriages returning from the play. A century after that, Virginia Woolf came to stay, and she wrote about the curious mix that one would encounter in the streets of Covent Garden in the evening. A bustle of barrow boys and market stallholders mixing with the well-dressed theatre-goers, arriving, dressed in their finery, to see a play. And right here in Covent Garden, two of our biggest cultural institutions, the Royal Opera House and the Theatre Royal Drury Lane. So, obviously you can see performances at either of those if you can get tickets, but you can also go inside in the daytime and go on a guided tour and get a flavour of Theatreland. The Royal Opera House, originally built in 1732, was in fact originally a theatre. It is, for example, the building in which Goldsmith's She Stoops to Conquer was premiered, although the original theatre burnt down and was replaced by this one, built in 1858. That was a good year for it to open. London was very excited because the eldest daughter of Queen Victoria, Princess Victoria, was getting married. 
London was full of guests for her wedding, a whole contingent of family from Germany, and it's known that Queen Victoria, on one evening in that year, hired 16 carriages to take a huge party of her German relatives to this theatre to see Macbeth, and then the whole lot returned to Buckingham Palace for a ball later in the evening. There are lots of write-ups by people who went to see productions there. I've picked out two by Arnold Bennett to show that he, one, very much enjoyed one, and two, went to another that he thought was simply dreadful. So in 1913, he went to see a production of Der Rosenkavalier, which was apparently nearly four hours in length, but he deemed it to be, quote, a work of the first order, and he wrote about the lengthy ovations which were given at the end to the performers. But the following year, he saw Parsifal, which he didn't like at all. He complained about the poor orchestra, the appalling scenery and costumes. He grudgingly admitted there was one good lead singer, but that the female chorus was rotten, and also that there were long stretches of dull music. He admits that, I went to sleep in the middle of each act. It was all over after eleven. Today it's the home of both the Royal Opera and the Royal Ballet, not to mention the Royal Ballet School, and they run a very popular programme of both types of performance, and you can go on tours to see backstage and get a look at the stage where, for example, Margot Fontaine and Rudolf Nureyev dance together to such acclaim. Also then, just up the road, is the Theatre Royal in Drury Lane, which is London's oldest and possibly most famous theatre, opened in the 1660s. Charles II was newly back on the throne. You may know that he was known as the Merry Monarch, He was all into things like theatre, which he thought should be restored after the dreary misery of the Cromwell and Puritans era, when there'd be no theatre going at all, it being viewed as unchristian. So the theatre opened to great acclaim. Sadly, it did have to close pretty soon afterwards, in 1665, because of the plague, but by the 1670s, it was thriving again. Charles II himself often came to performances here. In fact, it's believed to be that it was here that he first set eyes on Nell Gwynne, the actress who became his mistress. She was in a production of Dryden's Tyrannic Love in 1669, and he was smitten. Actually, he was quite loyal to her. We know that on his deathbed, he made his son, the future James II, promise to look after Nellie, who now wouldn't have her rich patron any more. Let not poor Nellie starve, is how he put it. It's a theatre which has seen so many famous actors over the years treading the boards. David Garrick, for example was not only an actor but also a manager here for 30 years or so, in the middle of the 18th century, the most famous actor of his day. And the greatest tragic actress of her day, Sarah Siddons, played here in the reign of George III. In fact, it's said that one of the death scenes that she performed in front of him reduced him to tears, and it was decided that it should never be performed again. Actresses in general had quite a bad reputation, but not Sarah Siddons. She was deemed to be extremely moral and upstanding, something which comes across in a quote from the playwright Sheridan, who apparently said, goodness knows what he'd been asked, but his answer to the question was, I make love to Mrs. Siddons. I would as soon make love to the Archbishop of Canterbury. It's also the theatre where perhaps the world's most famous clown, Joseph Grimaldi, played, introducing the modern idea of a clown, in fact. He it was who thought of the white face and red cheeks, who first wore the baggy trousers, and some of his famous routines are still being played out today. I myself have seen the one featuring a string of stolen sausages. I think there are probably lots of variations of that, but it was Joseph Grimaldi, here on stage at the Theatre Royal Drury Lane, 
who devised the original. Going through the 20th century, it's the theatre where Noel Coward put on so many of his plays, Private Lives, Blythe Spirit, etc. There's a statue of Noel Coward, actually, in the foyer. It was the setting for the Rodgers and Hammerstein musicals in the 1950s, Oklahoma, South Pacific, My Fair Lady in 1958, Hello Dolly, and coming a little bit more up to date, 42nd Street and Miss Saigon, which actually has been its most successful production ever. If you go on a tour, you'll see all sorts of highlights and have them explained to you. You will see, for example, that there are two royal boxes, and this dates from an incident in 1812 when King George III attended the theatre, as did his son, the future George IV. The two of them famously did not get on at all, so when they met in the lower rotunda in the building, trouble ensued. The king apparently began attacking his son, hitting him in the face, and, as a bystander put it, boxing his ears. And it was decided that this was so unseemly and such a terrible advert for the theatre that it could not be allowed to happen again. So from then on, there were two routes into the theatre, the king's side and the prince's side, and two royal boxes, the royal box and the Prince of Wales's box, both of which still exist today. The guide who takes you round will probably tell you some ghost stories, because it's reputed that there are about 500 ghosts in the building or have been over the years. And most famous of the whole lot is the Man in Grey. He dates from the 18th century, dressed as he is in a long grey riding cloak, riding boots, a sword, a powdered wig and a three-cornered hat. And he's always only seen in one part of the theatre, that being the upper circle. I don't think it's known who he was, but the main theory relates to an incident in the 1840s when there were workmen on site and they knocked into a wall in the upper circle where they found a skeleton which had a dagger in its ribs. So I think the thinking is that a murder must have taken place and that probably the victim comes back to haunt the theatre. There have been endless sightings. He's said to cross from one side to the other and then disappear through a wall. But actually, it's also said that if he appears at a rehearsal or a matinee performance, he only ever appears in the daytime apparently, then that's a good sign and means that the production is likely to be successful. The theatre today is linked to Sir Cameron Mackintosh and Sir Andrew Lloyd Webber, and in addition to putting on so many of their productions there, Sir Andrew Lloyd Webber has also overseen the refurbishment, very slowly and carefully done. He was very particular that as far as possible it should be put back to exactly how it was when it was first built in the 17th century. Of all the theatres in central London, I think it might be Theatre Royal Drury Lane with the most solid and long-standing reputation. Charles Dickens wrote of it, for example, Drury Lane is the oldest as it is also the largest and handsomest of the theatres proper in London. And I found a quote from the 1960s in which a theatre critic had written, The history of the Theatre Royal Drury Lane is, in fact, almost the history of the English theatre. And talking of theatre and entertainment generally, let's move on round to Piccadilly and Leicester Square. And just to introduce it, I'd like to quote Ed Glynett, writer of Literary London, who said this. The flashing neon lights of Piccadilly Circus are the most famous landmark in the world. Perhaps you beg to differ and would suggest something else, but I think we can all agree he's not far off. These two venues, Piccadilly and Leicester Square, stand in the song It's a Long Way to Tipperary, actually for the whole of London. The narrator, an Irish soldier, longing to get back home to Ireland, 
may have quite enjoyed visiting London, but he's off now, and the way he puts it is, So long, Piccadilly, farewell, Leicester Square. Piccadilly Circus, then, the centre of everything, and what a strange name. The word circus refers to the fact that when it was first built, it was pretty much a roundabout, with several roads leading off it. And the Piccadilly comes from the fact that in the 17th century, a Piccadill was a sort of frilly lace collar, and there was a tailor living just here who specialised in making them, and so it became known as Piccadilly Circus. It was built in 1819, the idea being that it would connect Regent Street to Piccadilly Street and keep shoppers moving round and presumably spending in both those streets. It's famous for its statue of Eros in the middle and for its neon lights, the first of which were put up as far back as 1908, a period in which the things being advertised were things like Bovril, which if you're not British you may not know. It's a sort of yeasty paste that you pour hot water into and make a drink out of. You'll be more familiar with one of the other signs that's been a focal point since 1955, and that's the sign for Coca-Cola. It's brash, it's colourful, it gives the place a feel-good factor, but I also read that there have been various occasions when the lights have been switched off, during World War II, of course, but also for the funeral of Winston Churchill and that of Lady Diana, Princess of Wales, because on neither occasion was it deemed respectful to keep those lights blaring on such a sad day. And then there's Leicester Square, which its own website tells us is, quote, a global icon, cultural hub and entertainment epicentre. Leicester Square, it says, exists to entertain. And if you go, I think you'll find there is no shortage of entertainment. You can see lots of the best shows in theatres all around. Some of London's biggest and, yes, most expensive cinemas are all clustered here. Think Odeon, Cineworld, View. And apparently, during any typical year, there will be more than 50 star-studded red carpet premieres held here. Fittingly, there's a massive statue of Shakespeare in the centre of the square. And the other thing to look out for is the Planet Hollywood floor plaques, which have the names and handprints of famous actors who've passed by. Tom Cruise, Sylvester Stallone, Sir Ian McKellen. Another factor which helps to make you feel that you really are at the centre of the entertainment world in London. And so a quick mention to the London theatres, of which there are about 40, many of them very famous names indeed. Some of them, in fact, actually named after famous names. There's the Gielgud, for example, and the Garrick, and the Harold Pinter. They range from small ones like the Arts Theatre, with its 350 seats, to huge emporia like the London Palladium, with its more than 2,000 seats. I looked at an alphabetical list of them, and just the ones that start with A are all famous places that you may have heard of. The Adelphi, the Aldwych, the Ambassadors, and the Apollo. The longest-running shows are Agatha Christie's The Mousetrap, which has been performed continuously since 1952, and the coastal ghost story, The Woman in Black. Just a list of some of the longest-running musicals gives you a flavour. Les Miserables, Phantom of the Opera, Blood Brothers, Cats, Mamma Mia, The Lion King. They've all been drawing crowds of theatre-goers to London for decades. Although I did notice on one of those most frequently asked questions slots on Google that if you ask the question, what is the name of the most famous theatre in London? None of those come up. Nope, the most famous theatre in London apparently is The Globe. It wasn't clear whether they meant the original Globe that Shakespeare wrote plays for, or whether it meant the replica of same built at the end of the 20th century on pretty much the same riverside site in Southwark as the original. 
but it does serve as a reminder if going to the theatre in London is something you want to do, don't forget the Globe. And in fact, I'll be talking more about that in a future episode. A good place to look if you want some current information about what's on in London theatres is the SALT, S-O-L-T, website, which stands for the Society of London Theatres. And also, in fact, they publish the official London Theatre Guide every fortnight. It's free. It's existed since 1922. And it will tell you all about what's on. Listings of shows in the West End, dance and opera productions, and also some off-West End shows. Sadly, I'm recording this in the middle of one of the Covid lockdowns, hopefully the last one, but a period in which the theatres have gone dark and are fighting pretty much an existential crisis. So I think we should all resolve, as soon as they open again, to go. And apart from the warm pleasure of knowing that you would be doing your bit, what better way is there, actually, to spend a night in London than at the theatre? I don't think I can think of one. And on that note, just to finish, here's a quotation from a Daily Telegraph critic writing as early as 1895 on the excitement of going to a first night at the theatre and the idea that in London, if you do that, you might run into lots of famous people. So this is what he wrote about an evening at the Lyceum. It was a splendid first night and everyone was on the tiptoe of excitement. Royalty was there and eager eyes looked towards the well-known box with a ledge of flowers and a brilliant mass of depending ribbons. All forms and features of art were there. Painters assembled to congratulate Sir Edward Byrne-Jones on his welcome wandering from the studio to the stage. Musicians came once more to cheer Sir Arthur Sullivan. Doctors were present, the best friends, the truest, kindest counsellors of the representatives of every phase of art. Judges and lawyers came. Literature in all its branches, journalism in all its various states, sent the fine flower of its nobility to the well-organised court of art, the Lyceum Theatre. So, time to leave London's centre of entertainment and finish the episode. Look forward briefly to next week when I'm going to go somewhere completely different, to Kensington in fact, to look at Victoria and Albert's London, which will be a good opportunity to look at things like the Victoria and Albert Museum and the Royal Albert Hall, the various other big museums, and of course, read a little bit about the life they led together in that part of London. So, I hope you'll look forward to joining me for that. I thank you very much for listening today, and please don't forget, next time you're in London, to go off to the Strand or Piccadilly or Leicester Square in search of some entertainment and a little excitement, and, if you can manage it at all, to buy a theatre ticket. Thanking you very much for your company today, and until next week, goodbye. <laughs>